Um, this Saturday uh, is the second ever Trunk or Treat. We had a great time last year. And uh, I, I want to encourage all of you to be there. Even if you can't um, get the, uh, your, your trunk set up or, or want to show up in costume, just show up for the fun. Okay, and there is a prize for those of you who get creative. If you get creative and you've got a real special deal, what happened to the hunters? Did they go off to children's worship? Yeah, well, you've noticed he's carrying around a golden pumpkin, and uh, that is the award. It's just like those uh, awards in college football, like the brown jug and whatever else. We've got the golden pumpkin, so you could win that after this Saturday. Um, but if you want to know more, there's posters up. You can go online and sign up. You can look on the church app. And uh, I think it's westark.org slash trunkertreat. Is that right? Yeah. And so please sign up and be a part of it and just come for the fun. I also want to uh, extend a welcome right here so that you can know them. Uh, Brad and Hannah Crawford are part of our church family. Here they are right here. I waited till Hannah was here. There you go. She's So... We want to, see, I could have done that a couple weeks ago, but Hannah wasn't here, so now we're so glad Hannah's here. Thank you both, and it's good to welcome you to the family. Um, <clears throat> the fourth healing choice in the uh, process that we're talking about, based on John Baker's book, Life's Healing Choices, the fourth healing choice has to do with admitting that we've made mistakes. Uh, it's a brave act to admit that you're wrong. Maybe you can remember a time that you had to do that. That you had to let someone know, yes, I was wrong. It's braver still to admit your sins and to take responsibility for it. And it's more than brave, though. It's a process towards healing. Without that admission of what we've done wrong we may be missing out on the healing and the hope that God will freely give us. But, but how do we manage the feelings of guilt and shame that we're undoubtedly going to encounter if we start this process of admitting what we've done wrong? Well, let's review, because I want you to show you that there is a, there is a logic to these choices. The first three choices we've talked about, and, and in fact, I noticed today, We've been singing about this all along. We admit that we're not God. We trust that God cares for us, and we commit our lives to Christ. What did we sing today? You're a good, good father. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. That's choices one and two. That we admit that there is a God, that we confess that there is a God, and then we acknowledge that He loves us. And we sang songs about committing our lives to Christ and how much we will devote ourselves to Christ. When you've gone through these three choices, then it makes sense that the next thing you do is you, you recognize what's causing you pain. You recognize what you've done wrong. You recognize what you've done to cause more pain in others. And it's more than brave, it's healing. Healing choice number four, the way John Baker words it, looks like this. I'm going to ask you to do something. I know it sounds kind of elementary school, but I'm going to tell you why. I, I want you to own this in some way. I want all of us to own this. And I want you to read this with me in just a moment. Because I'm, I'm fully aware, I mean, I feel this, and I imagine you do too. 
This, you know, those other three choices sound great. Yeah, I'm not God. I can say that. Uh, you know, God cares for me. That's good. And I'll commit my life to Christ. Yeah, I'll try. I'm going to or I will. But then this one, this one brings it home. So let's say this together. Let's read this together. Now, I choose to openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. That's just a little process of owning this. Because I think that sometimes what we've done with confession is we've made it so generic that it's not really a confession. There's a few parts to this. There's two verbs. We're going to examine and we're going to confess. That means that we're going to take some time thinking about it. I mean, if I just say generically, well, you know, I'm a sinner. It's true. But I'm not going into any details. I might as well say that I'm a human being. That's very generic. But if I sit down and think about it, then I start to recognize where my faults are. And then I'm going to confess that. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But you'll notice that there's three parts to this. It begins with me. It begins with you. You confess it to yourself. You confess it to God. And then you share it with one that you trust, with others that you trust. When we think of confession, we're going to end up coming across some Well, some ideas that aren't going to help us very much. The term conjures up images of certain procedural notions of confession, especially in church, like the priest in the booth. Now, even if you didn't grow up Catholic, you're going to think of this because you've seen enough shows, you've seen enough stories on TV, on movies, where the confession booth is made a part of the narrative, where people go in and divulge secrets. So we might think of that process, that procedure, and as long as we do that, we've done what we're supposed to do. The way we've done that, uh, uh, now coming on 500 years after Martin Luther on Halloween, there you go, uh, after he's you know, nailing his complaints or theses to the door, well, uh, now we have a lot of Catholic light solutions to, uh, to confession, and, and one of our favorites is Going forward before the church. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for that. In fact, at the end of this sermon, we will have, um, you know, an opportunity because we'll have shepherds here. And what I want you to always understand is what that represents is care and compassion. That represents the desire to let you respond to what God is saying to you and what God is doing in your life. But when we reduce that down to a procedural act, that has to be done to fulfill our penance, then we're missing out on the healing. I think we're starting to view it as though it's like paying a, a, a traffic ticket. You know, if, if, you're, if you're over 50 and, you, and you've never gotten a traffic ticket, you know, we'll talk because I'm impressed. I, I, I really, when I started learning to drive and when I started driving, I thought, I'm going to go my whole life without the ticket. Well, forget it. I've, I, and, you know, you just pick them up along the way. And you know what you learn? You learn, okay, don't do it again, but also i got to pay my dues. And so you just go, you bite the bullet, and you pay the ticket. It's a procedure. And, you know, and if it's not real serious and if your record's pretty good, you don't have anything to worry about. My concern is, is that we can treat confession in the church in such a way 
well, I need to admit this so I can move on. And we haven't really learned anything from it. We haven't really healed. So let's get rid of those misconceptions of confession, but what are we going to replace it with? Well, we're going to replace it with a biblical view, I hope. A biblical view of confession, I can find nothing better than James 5.16. I love this one. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, in that little section of, of James's letter, verses 13 through 20, he's talking about the problems that sin creates for a community of believers, the church. And he's talking about how they can, they can treat those and manage those and deal with those. I've got the verbs in this sentence underlined. Not because this is English class, but because if you look at those verbs, you start to recognize some things. Uh, confess literally means to agree to the statement. That the word that we translate confess could also be translated admit. Now confess has kind of a church ring to it. But admit means to face the truth. And yet that's what that word confess is truly all about. Do you agree to the statement is what the word is asking. Can you agree? Can you acknowledge your sins? That's an important Step in the healing process. Um, the next verb is to pray. And we've got a lot of different words that get translated pray in English. This word means to vow, to ask God. It's like a covenant. It's like a commitment. That, that when we ask God, when we make this vow, we're admitting, we're acknowledging the faults that we have, and we're making a vow with God for a new kind of life. And it's all so that we might be healed. Now here's another interesting fact about this. The your and the you. If you have King James, you'll see it. It's not, well it is, it's ye. Which is not just some funny old English sounding word for you. Ye is the King James equivalent of y'all. And I don't know if it actually says ye, but it'll be that same word, ye. Or it'll say your instead of thee and thou, which is just you, one person. Think about that. James 5.16 is not saying to you as an individual, confess your sins. It's saying to us as the church, confess your sins to one another so that you, all of you, may be healed. Ha! That means that when I take responsibility for my faults, when I admit them and acknowledge them before God, when I go to God in prayer and ask for His forgiveness, not only is that for my healing, but that's for your healing as well. That's how the church is healed. And you know, it makes a lot of sense because the truth is that, that when you are the person that God wants you to be, we're all made better. It helps us all. When I'm the person that God wants me to be, it helps you all in the same way. When I am not the person that God has called me to be, not only am I hurt, but you get hurt as well. This is the thing about this 
this guilt and this confession, it is relational. Guilt does that to us. That when we live with guilt, it breaks our relationships with others. It breaks the way we live in community. Guilt does three things. I'm borrowing this from John Baker. Guilt destroys confidence. What I mean by that is we can't relate to people honestly when we're carrying around burdens of guilt because we keep secrets. We avoid the truth. And we hurt people because we lie, we deceive, we're afraid of being caught or exposed. When guilt is burdening us, we don't look at, maybe people, when we look at people we've hurt, we don't really view them as human beings. We view them as reminders of what we've done wrong. And we can't blame them for it. We have to take responsibility for that. Guilt, secondly, damages relationships. It causes us, when, when we haven't been healed from the guilt, we respond in painful ways. We overreact. When we feel guilty or ashamed about something, somebody might say something innocent to us, and we'll go, what do you mean by that? Or we won't say anything at all, and then we'll go tell our friends later, I, I know what he was thinking. I know. Did you see the way she looked at me? I knew what that meant. And it's funny that some of us, you know, we refuse to read, but in a single glance or in an off comment, we will read an entire dictionary into that. Where does that come from? It comes from the guilt that we carry around. That's not us. That's the voice of the evil one speaking through that guilt. It damages our... Well, on the other hand, not only can it cause us to overreact, it can cause us to overcompensate. That since we feel guilty, we feel like we, um, we have to somehow prove that over and over again to other people. Or we feel, we feel guilty about how we've treated our kids, or we feel guilty about uh, what we've been doing, and so we overcompensate. Maybe we spoil our children. Maybe, maybe, we, uh, maybe we act um, in such a way around others that it's constantly making them anxious and nervous. You know, back in the medieval times, they, would, they had people that would feel uh, guilty about their sins and their crimes. And, and, and they would go around and they would beat themselves uh, with, a, with a whip. And, and, and they would damage themselves. And, and here, you're, you're going to the marketplace and here come these, these bloody, beat-up people running around. I mean, what are you supposed to think about that? Ah, oh, now there's a righteous fellow. Look at him there, bleeding all over the place. What a guy, you know. Oh, he's in pain. All right. You know, I, man, he, he doesn't have any guilt. They actually say that that contributed to a lot of disease because that was done. Do you see how unprocessed guilt or guilt processed the wrong way can actually hurt other people? It damages the relationships because we hold grudges. We cast blame on others. When we haven't taken responsibility for what we've done wrong, we have a very kindergarten view of it. I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. It's all your fault. Well, if you hadn't spoke to me that way, well, he shouldn't have said that. Well, you didn't see it. You, didn't, you weren't there. We get angry or we feel worthless. And when we feel worthless, we can't relate to other people as God intends for us to. Finally, what guilt does is it dooms us to the past. Jesus told us that by worrying, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching, he says, ask this wonderful question. By the way, tonight in the Sunday evening class, 
we're going to start doing the parables of Jesus, but I'm not really sure this is, qualifies as a parable, but it's a wonderful image. And I'm going to paraphrase Jesus. He just says, hey, which one of you, by worrying, can grow another foot? I mean, if you concentrate and focus enough worry on that, can you actually change the size of your body? Can you change the color of your hair? He says worry is useless for changing the future. In the same way, guilt is useless for changing the past. You can feel as guilty as you want. It won't change that. But when we admit it, we acknowledge what it is. And that's where the healing process begins. So, that's a better view of confession, but is there a process? Well, there is, in general. I don't want us to think that it's like going to the priest in the booth or walking forward or writing a statement. I don't want us to just think it's procedural like paying a ticket. I want us rather to see it as a process governed by, led by, the Holy Spirit, and there are some principles that guide it. And I want to give you those three principles. First, we admit it to ourselves. We take inventory. Without inventory, you're going to over-medicate your problem. You know, sometimes in medicine, and I've been on the, the, the receiving end of this, you have a problem, physicians aren't really sure what's, uh, what's wrong with you, so they're going to run some tests. Now, without running tests... I can throw the whole medicine cabinet into my body hoping that it's going to help. You know? Or I can even use things that aren't medicines to medicate my problem. And the thing is, all of those treatments may not even address the real problem. But with a test and with a proper diagnosis, they might find out, oh, yeah, okay, look, you've got this problem, or you've got this infection, and we need to use this antibiotic because those other antibiotics don't work. Spiritually, when you take the time to take inventory of what you're going through, you're going to find out what the real problem is and how God can treat it. But to do that, we've got to be specific, as specific as we want a medical lab test to be. That means you're going to go through a process of taking some time, examining, admitting. Write it down if you need to. But in being specific, let me encourage you in this way. In being specific, don't label yourself. We don't want to come out of this with a bunch of labels that we've tacked on ourselves. I'm of this and I'm of that or I'm of this. Rather, we admit and acknowledge what it really is. I have done. I have contributed to. I have felt this. If we start to own those things, then we can see how God helps us. Taking inventory also helps us overcome denial so that we're not blaming the problem on others. It can also help us put the responsibility where it belongs. For some of us, the guilt that we carry around really doesn't belong to us. (laughs) It was never ours. I, I mean... How would you feel if I came over to your house and I started taking my dumpsters of trash and putting them in your front yard? You're not going to go for that very long. Uh, you're not going to like that. But if I said, hey, look, you know, you're a Christian. You, you, you ought to love me. So if you love me, love my, tr- love my trash. Here you go. And you, you deal with it. You take care of it. 
I think you're going to say, no, you know, that belongs to you. you. You need to take care of that. Well, it's the same way with our guilt. We can't hand it off to others, and we can't take it from others either. So when we take this time to admit to ourselves what we're dealing with, we're going to discover some things, which leads then to the next step of this confession process. Now we admit it to God. There's another verse that you can find in this study on confession. I love this one too. 1 John 1.9. And John is telling the church, his dear children, his little children. I mean, he loves these people. He's not scolding them. He tells them that what they need to do is they need to admit that they've sinned. That they need to own it. They need to take responsibility for it. And along the way he says, now if we confess, and that's that same word, if we admit, if we acknowledge our sins to him, God, he, on his part, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and he will cleanse us from all wickedness. The first three choices that we admit that we're not God, that we trust that God cares for us, that we commit our life to Christ, we are putting ourselves in the reliable care of the one who we call just and faithful. He's fair. He's honest. He loves us. And he will cleanse us. So after we admit it to ourselves, we, we move a step further and, and we, we sort it out with God. We admit it to God as well. And why not? Do you really think you can hide it from God? No. Um, God knows. But now this is where we'd like to stop. Hey, I'm good. What if God and I just sort it out? For a lot of people, that's where they choose to stop. A lot of people don't like religion but they do like spirituality i like god i like christ i'm not big on the church how far is that going to go if you go to someone and say you know what i think you I, i i i think you're great you're a really cool guy but man i hate your wife and kids that relationship's not going to work very well is it but aren't we saying the same thing when we say to god hey god i like you you're a great father the rest of your kids, though, mm, they need some work. Christ, you're all right. Uh, you're, you're, you could be my king. We could be, we could be friends. But I really don't like that, that bride you married. Mm. Think about that. The problem with guilt and the problem with faults and sin is that our problem is relational. And yet, that's not to say that the bride of Christ or the children of God don't have their share of problems. Of course we do. And this process of confession is how we're being healed, one another, from all these problems. So if you really want this healing to take effect, we have to go one step further and admit it to someone you trust. Now, I think it's important that we admit it to someone that we trust. Here's where the one another matters. Um... That trust part is important. One, one of the best jokes Roy Donovan ever told me was about these three preachers in a boat. These three preachers were in a boat, and, and one of them says, Guys, as long as we're out here fishing, I, I just think I need to tell you, I've got a real problem with drinking. I mean, I, I can't even preach a sermon until I, 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 I put down, you know, a quarter of a bottle of scotch. Oh, it's that bad. Next guy goes, Well, I don't want you to feel alone. I've got to tell you, 
I've got a problem with using foul language. I mean, I have scorched the inside of my car, cursing people on the highways. Oh, my wife, she runs from me because I, I just, I, I get so angry. And then, of course, the third guy sitting in the fishing boat, standing there, you know, he's feeling kind of awkward, and they're kind of wondering, well, does he say anything or not? And he goes, well, I do want to confess my faults to all of you. I'm a terrible gossip, and I can't wait to get out of this boat. And uh, <laughs> I think that was a joke, wasn't it, Roy? It wasn't a true, true, true experience, I don't think. It was the, uh, yeah, oh, I love that joke. But that's where the trust part comes in. To trust someone, we need someone who is not only trustworthy, but you also have to make sure that they're mature and faithful. And mature does not mean somebody older than you. Mature means somebody who has a high emotional IQ. That means that they can handle it. You do not want to share your problems with someone who then is going to flip their lid and go crazy. Oh, I can't believe this about you. Oh, no, how am I going to carry this burden? Don't do that. Don't think that this process entitles you to go and you know, dump your trash wherever you want. You have to go some, to someone who's mature enough to handle it. You need to find somebody who's also faithful. Because, like James 5.16 says, pray for one another. Is this person going to be able to make that vow with you to seek God's healing? Is that person going to be able to ask on your behalf and on his or her behalf that that this process works? I'm going to give you one other little, it's not on the list, but I'm going to give you one other little guideline, okay? And I guess, you know, we just have to trust me on this. As a rule, it would be best for men to talk to men and women to talk to women, especially depending on what the concerns are. But again, I don't want to make that a dogmatic rule. I just want to point out some guidance. Now, in pointing these things out, I don't want you to think that all hope is lost and there's no one to find. Uh, in fact, that's, that's where we get to, the, uh, to what's coming up you know, for this church. There's the website I'm always talking about, westark.org slash CR. One of the things I want you to know, too, Larry Roper. Larry, raise your hand so everybody can see you. This is Larry. Larry told me this. There's going to be a few others that are involved in this. Uh, we've got that class. Next Sunday, after our worship service, there's going to be a 15-minute meeting in room 106 to start a step study. I want to encourage you, if you're looking for, you know, if, if you're thinking, I just don't know if I can find someone where I can confess these things in a trusted environment. Well, our hope is to put together Celebrate Recovery groups here. But at the same time, I'm going to tell you, you know, if you can find a group somewhere, go to that experience, then do that. Or maybe it's just a trusted person. Maybe it's one of your shepherds. Maybe it's one of your ministers. Or maybe it's just someone that you respect and have a close relationship to, a fellow believer in Christ. But I want you to know that these options are out there. Let me, let me also take care of another misperception. People here celebrate recovery, and they tend to think about the, uh, you know, the big celebration. That people come together, they have a big worship, they have a big meal. In fact, I remember when we were thinking about this, and we were dreaming about this. Somebody said, well, isn't that a lot of work to put together the, the meals and the worship? Thankfully, I had reliable counselors who told me, uh, that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is the small groups, the three or four, the five or six who meet face-to-face in these step studies. And that's what we want to do. 
So that'll be next week when you can have a meeting about that. You can talk to Larry. You can talk to me. Uh, you can talk to any number of people who've been involved in that. But it doesn't have to be Celebrate Recovery. I mean, Celebrate Recovery is based on spiritual biblical principles that have been in existence for a long, long time. One of the things that's unique, though, about Christian prayer, and you see this in James 5.16, you see it in John, 1 John 1.9, is that in the Christian faith, we have the assurance that God listens to our prayers. We have the assurance that we are heard. We don't have to do something to wake God up so that he can hear our pleas and our requests. In fact, it's the other way around. God is working to wake us up so that we will respond to him. He's taken the first action. He's taken the first step. He has shown us how much he loves us. So it's left to us to respond. Now, as I've said, as we sing this next song, we're going to create some of these options for you. There will be some shepherds here that you can talk to, pray with. Uh, they'll also be in room 106. Again, that's just a convenience. You know, you might catch one of them on the way out today and just say, hey, I need to talk. Or it may not be appropriate to have that conversation here. That's fine. Contact somebody and say, I'd like to meet this week. I don't want you to be anxious. I just want you to be intentional, okay? Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would be with any who are here today who need to take the brave step of accepting responsibility for their faults and then trusting in you that you can bring about healing. And I pray that you would be with, with any of us who might find ourselves approached by a friend, by someone who might say, I want to confess some things to you, that we will be mature and that we will be faithful and trustworthy. Father, would you continue to work your spirit in this church family for the sake of healing and let us trust that you are stronger and mightier and that you are greater and your grace is greater than all of our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.